Hello everyone, this is a special upcoming 200th episode announcement. As per request from my audience, I'll be the one on the interview stand for this one. And hosting me will be Charles Anderson, a longtime friend of the show, and the founder of Charles Reed Anderson and Associates. If you have any pending questions for me, please tweet to him at C-R-A-S-I-N-G-A-P-O-R-E-C-R-A Singapore or hashtag AA200 before the end of this weekend. Thank you. And now, back to the show. This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Jan Dawson from Jackdaw Research and Tech Narratives on a two-part conversation. In the second part of our conversation, we discuss the Korean technology giant Samsung, where we discuss their business structure and key executives behind the company and examine their recent troubles and the surprisingly high profitable second quarter in 2017. Welcome back with me, Jan Dawson from Jackdaw Research and the creator of two of my favorite podcasts, one with Aaron Miller called the Beyond Devices podcast and also the new one that he just started is called Tech Narratives. So Jan, I wanted to get you back on actually to talk about a company in Asia that I've been trying very hard to find someone to talk to about, which is Samsung. As far as I know, Samsung is a South Korean multinational electronics company headquartered in Suwon, South Korea, with a market cap of at least US $330 billion, which is our 0.33 trillion. So to give my audience a bit of a head start, what is the vision and mission of the Samsung conglomerate, or in Korean terms, they call it the Shaboy? Yeah, so it's the biggest of those shy balls that you talked about, these, this sort of uniquely Korean structure where you've got these absolutely massive companies that compete across a lot of different industries. And Samsung's the largest of those, you know, depending on which source you cite, it's something like 17% of the Korean economy. So it's absolutely enormous company. And yet the part that the most of us deal with is just one element of that larger conglomerate. So that's Samsung Electronics specifically. There are other parts that deal with shipbuilding and construction and life insurance and running a theme park in South Korea. Um, there's a, an ad agency, various other bits and pieces. But the one that's most relevant probably for your audience and certainly for what I cover as well is Samsung Electronics, which is you know the majority of the, the group revenue, but only one of those big companies that I mentioned. That's the one that makes all the stuff that consumers actually use. So it's the one that makes the appliances and phones and TVs and all the rest of it. So that's the company that that I tend to focus on. And, and even that is a pretty diverse company operating in a lot of different areas. So how is Samsung actually divided into their separate subsidiaries and what are their key business lines? For example, you know, you have the semiconductors and screens that run independently from Apple yet compete with them at the same time with the mobile phone, for example, the Samsung Galaxy 8 then. Yeah, absolutely. So there are three main divisions within Samsung Electronics. They're usually referred to by abbreviations. So they each have two letter abbreviation names. So the first one is CE, which stands for Consumer Electronics. And that's the one that makes televisions and appliances, washing machines, fridges, all that kinds of stuff for your home. They also have a smaller business there that's in health and medical equipment. So that's less sort of consumer facing, more sold into hospitals and doctors and so on. But that's the Consumer Electronics division. So TVs and appliances for the most part. The second division is called IM, and that stands for IT and Mobile Communications. 
And this is where phones, tablets, PCs, wearables, a lot of those things, the sort of personal communication devices come from. That's that division. There is also a part of that that makes uh, network equipment that goes into telecoms networks and competes with big network equipment companies like Huawei and Nokia and so on. And then the third division is called DS, and this, that stands for Device Solutions. And that has three parts to it. Uh, the first is memory, so DRAM, NAND, flash, SSD, different types of memory for phones, tablets, PCs, servers increasingly as well. And the market share there is anything from sort of a third to a half in those respective markets, and they're kind of the number one player across those categories that I mentioned. And then they have their system LSI business, which is basically about uh, systems on a chip for mobile use primarily. So they're Exynos chips that go into Galaxy S phones in certain markets and to some extent chips made for other companies as well. And then there's a third division in that, that part of the company, which is their foundry business. And in the semiconductor space, there are really two separate things that happen. There are com companies that design chips, and then there are companies that actually go out and build them in factories and so on. And so the companies that design but don't make their own chips are referred to as being fabulous manufacturers. So they do everything but the actual manufacturing. They hand off the manufacturing to somebody else. And then there are what are called foundries, which make chips on behalf of those companies. And so Samsung both makes chips for its own use to go into its own devices and so on. But it also has this foundry business that makes chips for others as well. And so, you know, in the IT and mobile communications segment where they make phones and tablets and so on, they compete with Apple. And certainly in making uh, their own Exynos chips and so on, those go into devices that can be, compete with Apple's devices. And yet they're also that foundry business that makes chips for others, including Apple. And they have a display business as well that also makes displays increasingly clear that they're going to be making displays for Apple's new phones launching in the fall as well with OLED displays. So that's another part of that business. So yes, there's this strange sort of coopetition or frenemies or whatever word you want to use where the two companies compete very aggressively and obviously have been embroiled in a lawsuit for the last several years over design and patents and so on. And yet uh, Samsung's also a major supplier to Apple and, and that relationship's likely to grow later this year uh, with the OLED display business. I thought I should just point out on some of the things I read about Samsung. One of the things they have is something called the choke point strategy is how they became so good at doing consumer electronics. They started off with doing the coolant unit in the refrigerator and subsequently because they do the most critical component of that particular consumer electronic, they actually are able to forecast how the actual device is going to work and subsequently they create they build the best refrigerator they replicated the same strategy with screens they started with uh, doing tv screens and then they that was the critical component and subsequently they dominated in tv and they did the same with smartphones with the ssd and also the semiconductor chips so one thing i always wanted to understand about samsung who are actually the key executives or board members of Samsung? Samsung of their subsidiaries, for example, mobility. Because you hear every day that their vice chairman, the one uh, Lee Jae Yong, is always being called prosecuted for corruption in South Korea, which is pretty difficult for a company so big that you need to have big decisions to be made for so many diverse subsidiaries. Yeah, and, and it's again, it's important to understand that that's talking about the Samsung Group rather than Samsung Electronics specifically. And so the, the leadership of Samsung Electronics remains intact and has been basically unchanged for the last few years now. So Dr. Oh Yoon Kwon is the vice chairman and CEO of Samsung Electronics, has been since 2012. And he oversees the components business, so semiconductors and displays and all that kind of stuff. They have two other uh, men who also have president and CEO titles. So Bu 
Kyun Yun is in charge of the consumer electronics part and also has a president CEO title. And then John Kyun or JK Shin is president and CEO as well. And he oversees the IT and mobile communications. So these three men run the company together with Oi Hyun Kwan being kind of the overall head as vice chairman and overseeing the components business. And then the other two overseeing the other two big divisions within the company. So they're the three key guys. And you'll see JK Shin on stage quite a bit at Samsung device launches like the Galaxy S8 launch that was held in March or April of this year in New York, for example, you know, he was on stage presented for part of that. He's sort of the figurehead, very passionate guy. He's clearly a really important leader for this part of the business. But obviously, there's a whole layer of additional executives underneath these guys. And Samsung here in the US has its own leadership and, uh, you know, of, of the various businesses that have a presence here. So appliances and mobile communications, and then the networks business and semiconductors each have their own leaders in the US and other major markets around the world as well. I was reading a book by uh, Vern Hanish, uh, one of the editors of Fortune, about the best business decisions of all time. And one of them was actually Samsung, where the founder, Chairman Lee Kun Hee, actually decided that they're going to import foreign talent into their conglomerate and actually create management associate programs to actually build them into the leadership of Samsung itself. So coming back... Samsung is expected to report the highest profit in Q2 of 2017 with revenue up 18% and profit up 72% from last year. Where are these profitability coming from? Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, Samsung and LG as Korean companies, they report sort of preliminary financial results before their final financial results come out. So we've seen their preliminary results already for Q2. And as you say, the results for Samsung are pretty astonishing, record high revenues and profits for them this quarter. And it looks very likely that Samsung will actually have the highest profit of any consumer electronics company, even Apple, in the quarter, given that this tends to be a low quarter for Apple in its annual cycle. And this is going to be a record high quarter for Samsung. So really quite astonishing quarter. The challenge is we don't know yet what the breakdown is by division because that doesn't come out until the final results are published in a couple of weeks time so we'll have to wait and see uh, for certain what the breakdown is but we can certainly look back at the last few quarters and see where the growth is coming from see where the profitability is coming from and the point is it's really not in mobile which is still the biggest part of the business but which has been largely sort of flat year on year in terms of revenue and in terms of profit that hasn't been growing it hasn't been shrinking it's still down from the peak two, three years ago when they were really riding high in terms of shipments, in terms of revenues, in terms of profitability. But what's really been going well for Samsung over the last couple of years is that semiconductor business. So the components business has been doing very well for them, been driving pretty much all of their revenue growth, been driving the vast majority of their profit growth as well. And even though it's not the biggest division at Samsung, it's certainly by far the most profitable. So it's something like a quarter or less of their revenue, but it's almost two thirds of their profits come from the semiconductor division. And a big chunk of that, sort of 70 something percent of the semiconductor revenues come from memory. And so memory, DRAM, NAND, flash, SSD and so on. Those have been really high growth areas for Samsung uh, over the last couple of years. And because there's been sort of fairly tight supply demand balance there, prices have gone up quite a bit. There are new use cases for those types of memory in servers. So as companies are building up data centers very rapidly to support cloud services and so on, they need this memory, this very sort of responsive memory that Samsung can supply um, where it's the number one market shareholder. And so that memory business and the semiconductor business in general has been very, very healthy for them. And then the display business has also been very healthy for them. They've, you know, that hasn't grown nearly as much 
as a semiconductor business has, but still been very healthy for them. So all of these sort of components businesses have been a big part of their growth and then their increase in profits over the last couple of years. For the Samsung Mobile, which is where they are selling all the consumer electronics and the smartphones, is that unit actually growing or is is just basically gone flat and everything is just driven by the components business then? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's actually been flat to in decline over the last little while. So it's not growing. It, it did obviously grow very rapidly from about sort of 2008, 2009 through about 2014. And then it went through something of a decline and it sort of recovered a little and now it's basically flat. So not growing rapidly at all has had, you know, quite a few quarters where it's actually declined in terms of revenue. Obviously I had a tough few quarters at the end of last year with the Note 7 launch that had to be recalled and so they had a lot of lost sales there and then took a big hit to profits as well during that period because of the devices that were manufactured but couldn't be sold and in many cases had to be destroyed and so on so they've had a you know particularly tough period over the last year or so but in general that division you know barring the sort of one-off stuff like the note 7 recall has been fairly flat in terms of both revenue and profits so given that it's a year after the Samsung Note 7 debacle, in your opinion, do you think that the Samsung have managed to recover from their setback with the Galaxy 8? Yeah, I think they really have. And I think, and this is a great example of this sort of power of narratives, which we talked about last time around, is, you know, you see something like this recall, you see the press going absolutely berserk over it and really covering it. Uh, as if it was the biggest news story. And, you know, it is a big deal. Nobody wants to buy a consumer electronics device and have it catch fire or blow up in their home. You know, it's really quite frightening and it's clearly something that shouldn't happen. But the actual number of cases involved was well under 100, you know, out of a couple of million devices sold. So very, very tiny numbers. And the reality is Samsung has a long history of producing devices that don't have these problems. And so if you look at surveys that were done shortly after and that have been done more recently, it seems as though most consumers' perceptions of Samsung were relatively unchanged. You know, their positive approval ratings and so on might have gone down by a few percentage points. Interestingly, though, the views of people who are regular users of Samsung products went down by far less so people had a lot of personal experience with very reliable uh, and high-performing Samsung mobile phones were far less likely to have their opinion changed by what happened with the Note 7. So, you know, in general, I think the impact was probably less than a lot of people were suggesting at the time that it happened. But I think also Samsung, it took quite a while to get there. I think in some ways that was sensible. They needed to really be thorough about all of this. It took quite a while to sort of finish their investigation they invited in external parties. They really made very clear what the problems had been, how they'd been identified and so on. They'd rather downplayed the cultural aspects internally that probably led to some of the corner cutting and so on that was arguably the root cause of some of the issues they had with the Note 7. But they were transparent about what the technical problems were, how they were going to make changes to ensure this didn't happen again and so on. And clearly they've had a very successful launch with the Galaxy S8 phones in the last couple of months now that have done very well with no reports of fires or anything like that. So, you know, it really does seem to been a one-off i think having a successful launch of the subsequent device is really important to them that seems to have gone off largely without a hitch and we're now building up to what's likely to be a fall or autumn launch of the next note device probably the note 8 to my mind the bigger issue is whether that's a compelling device in its own right not whether many people are worried about fires or anything else so i think you know that that demonstrates to me that they've recovered really quite well from all the problems from a year ago do you foresee that they're actually going to call it Note 8 or instead they will rebrand it to something else? There were certainly 
me some stories at the time of the Note 7 recall that they'd have to ditch the Note brand. Uh, my sense recently is that's not likely, actually. I think they will stick with the Note brand. They have a lot of loyal customers. You know, the fact that it, it took a long time to get people to hand back what were clearly defective Note 7 devices just gives you some idea of how attached people are to the Note line and how much people like it and how much it really has its own set of fans. And so, you know, I think they need to preserve that branding to make clear this is the successor to those previous phones that people have really loved. And, you know, I think it'll sell well. I think the challenge is going to be that the S8 is so good now, the screen is so large within that slightly smaller form factor that it's going to be harder to set the Note 8 apart because it used to be differentiated by having a really big screen and now the S8 Plus has a, an almost as large a screen. So it's really just the stylus and then they have to figure out some other additional features that are going to set it apart. There's some rumors that it's going to be priced more highly as well, which will make it tougher to sell too. So we'll see how all that pans out. But yeah, I expect them to keep the Note branding. I don't think they'll ditch that, even though that was reported early on. I think they'll keep it because they have a pretty loyal customer base and I think they'll buy it even with the Note brand. I know you covered a lot about how this whole recall done by the Samsung Note 7 and in fact you and Aaron Miller did an episode that actually talked about uh, brands that actually suffer this kind of incidents before Yeah, with Tylenol which is the most famous case study of the, of this kind so one thing there, it has always been on my mind to ask this question if it was not Samsung but Apple having the same situation do you think that the tech narrative is going to be escalated much more worse than Samsung? Yeah, I think back to when there was a version of the iPhone that appeared to have a problem with the antennas, where if you held it in a certain way, you covered a gap between two parts of the antenna and the signal seemed to deteriorate quite significantly. You know, that was called antenna gate in the press. There was a huge fuss about it. Uh, you know, in the end, Apple had to come out and make a statement and offer free bumpers, these sort of wraparound covers that went around the phone that, that avoided the issue and so on. Um, you know, there was a huge fuss made about it. And, you know, it wasn't dangerous in any way. If you simply didn't hold it in quite that way, there wasn't an issue at all. The device performed perfectly well in every other way. And yet there was this huge fuss made about it. And, you know, as if it was a scandal, as if they ought to do a recall, as if they'd made some huge mistake and so on. And so I look at that, which was very different in nature from the Note 7 recall, which actually was dangerous. It was a real fault in the device. It could literally cause either property or physical damage to people. You know, it was a real issue and the way that was covered. And, and there does seem to be a bit of a disconnect. I feel like Apple is held to a higher standard when it comes to this kind of thing. And if something like the Note 7 fires and explosions had happened to Apple with an Apple device with an iPhone, for example, I feel like it would have been a much bigger deal and, and the news coverage would have been a lot uh, heavier and harder on Apple. And I think it would have really been hit very hard by that. So it does reflect how, you know, narratives that build up around companies really can be determined to a great extent by the underlying narratives and by by people's needs to, to have stories have broader meaning, essentially. And so I think their story would have taken on much more of a life of its own if it had been about Apple than than it did being about Samsung. I've actually heard from Ben who came onto my podcast in the last episodes that Samsung is actually gaining back market share again. So you'd be curious to see what, where this is going to go. So I have a final penultimate question. So is Samsung's recent acquisition of Harman signal their focus to go into the autonomous vehicle space then? I'm not sure that it does. I mean, clearly it is 
in the car space, you know, Harman Kardon makes a lot of stuff. They make speakers for the home and various other things as well. They have a lot of different sub brands, but clearly they're also a major player in in car systems and head ends and and stereos and and a lot of other elements within the car. So there is obviously a car connection there. It's mostly been related to core functions of the car rather than uh, sort of peripheral things like autonomous driving. You know, Harman Kardon doesn't really have any of its own autonomous systems or anything like that other companies can certainly use its components as part of an autonomous system but they haven't made a huge investment in that so i see it more as being about connecting yet another domain to uh, samsung's other businesses you know about learning from audio and putting some of those audio uh, capabilities into other Samsung devices. There's going to be a Harman Kardon called Cortana-powered smart speaker, for example, to compete with the Amazon Echo later this year. But, you know, connecting Samsung smart devices to the car in the way that Apple devices connect to the car through CarPlay and Android devices connect through Android Auto, for example, you know, building something like that seems like an obvious thing. So smart car rather than autonomous driving feels like a major focus to me but also you know it's a it's a place to build systems to be a part of the broader autonomous push even if if samsung isn't developing the autonomy itself it can still be a player that benefits from all of that that optimizes those systems where they use harman kardon components and so on so as i say it feels more about an indirect role in autonomy more of a direct role in smart car and other related systems about owning another domain in consumers lives you know the home they already have a huge stake in through their consumer appliances for the home the sort of mobile space they obviously have a huge share of you know dominant market share in in mobile phones and and number two share in tablets for example and then the car is kind of the third domain that they can have a role in and, and obviously doing a lot actually to, to take their devices into work as well so it's yet another domain so the car feels like a place that samsung wants to play in. and i think that's really what the Harman kardon acquisition is about for now it seems to be largely kind of running as its own entity still within samsung but i would expect to see more crossover over time and that there were some headphones that were given away with the Samsung Galaxy S8 phones that came from one of the Harman Kardon subsidiaries or at least were branded with their technology. So that we're going to see some more crossover like that in time, I think. But uh, certainly a very interesting acquisition. It feels like quite a smart one as well. Yeah, and it's been a great pleasure talking to you for the last hour on tech narratives and also on Samsung in specific. So help my audience. How do they find you? Yeah, so uh, my name is spelled J-A-N-D-A-W-S-O-N, and that's my Twitter handle as well. It's just Jan Dawson on Twitter. Tech Narratives, which we talked about in the last episode, is at www.technarratives.com. Beyond Devices is a blog, which is on Medium, and there's the Beyond Devices podcast, and both of that and the Tech Narratives podcast are available on iTunes and Overcast and other podcast apps. If you just search for them, you should be able to find them pretty easily. I'm pretty easy to reach, so if you go to my website for my company, jackdawresearch.com, and you'll find ways to contact me if you want to email me or call me or anything like that. So we'd love to hear from any of you who have follow-up questions or anything else. But thanks very much, Bernard. This has been a great great uh, discussion here over those last two episodes. You can find me at bleongcw.bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and also tune in. Of course, Google Play only in the US market. Of course, recommend us on Overcast. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And most importantly, drop me your feedback. Once again, Jan, thank you for coming on the show. And I will hope to get you back again. Sounds good. Thank you.